the same manner of our understand and our uh, techniques of understanding and knowledge with spiritual evolution and that'll be the first three weeks of, uh, of uh, December. So <laughs> we're going to get to the other side of his uh, spreadsheet handout. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to look at the spiritual side of knowing. I trust you all had a great Thanksgiving. And I'm going to bet that we could open in prayer. Yep. I've got a mouthful of He's got a mouthful of food, so he's, what a perfect metaphor for Thanksgiving weekend. Dear God, this, this blessed day that we can be with you together, we ask you to be in community with us as we learn about you in ways that we cannot begin to know. Bless John. Be with us in our minds and our hearts and our spirits as we listen and learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I'll just point out to you that we have a visitor that comes here. She's a therapist. Her name is Donna. She comes with her husband, Milan. I don't know if you've gained her acquaintance or not. But she wrote me this morning uh, and said her brother's having open-heart surgery in California. So asked me to pray, and I, I just said I'd pass it on to you, too. So... Please pray for him. All right, my friends, here we are <clears throat> at the end of the course. So appropriate that we would have this as the title, telos or conclusion. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to talk to you about what telos means. But here's what we're going to try to accomplish today. I want to give you a few stories that, uh, a couple, two, that unite the notion of the cosmos, the wonder of the cosmos, and the thing that we talked about last week, the wonder of logos, or the fact, as Albert Einstein said, is that the most incomprehensible thing to me is that the universe is comprehensible. And if you remember from last week, that was I was trying to get at that notion, this wonder of the fact that we actually have a consciousness, sentience, self-consciousness, intelligence, and that when we apply it, we actually find out what? That there's some resonance between us and the universe and that things can be actually known, which is an amazing thing because where did that, con how did that power come that we could actually, you know, just evolve and know? So that was what we tried to do last week and I want to talk two stories that show that. Then we want to look at the sci current scientific views of the end. I'm going to contrast with one sacred view of the end uh, where there I put a footnote in there for you to look. Of course, many world religions have differing views of the end, but we're in a Christian church, and we're going to look at the Christian view of the end, uh, which is totally appropriate to do. And you'd have to take a comparative religion course to study all of the other versions and visions of the end. But in strange ways, many of them are quite compatible with the Christian view. So there is a body of religious tradition out there of which the tr Christian tradition is one that has this idea of, of an end. And then at the end, <clears throat> I'm going to try to do a little synthesis, and I want to share with you one thing that's absolutely pertinent to share in a Presbyterian church. Now, not everybody here is a Presbyterian, but you should be. <laughs> now, uh, what is that one thing? <laughs> what is that one thing in the Presbyterian uh, 
belief system as it evolved that, that shines above all. Ah, warm. It is a corollary of something else. Predestination is a corollary or an illogical extension of something else. Uh, that's, a, that's a corollary or an extension of it as well. Uh, that is absolutely true. Um, Total depravity. <laughs> yeah, tragically, that's true too. <laughs> ah, wait, what? There we go, and this guy's not even a Presbyterian. <laughs> Uh, yes, he should be. <laughs> hey, in fact, you are becoming one, right? Because he just became, you're at Northminster. Presbyterian? He is becoming a Presbyterian. Okay, sovereign, Brian works with Young Life, but he's also a youth pastor. Okay, the sovereignty of God, what does that mean? It means that God is in utter and complete and total control of all things predicated on God's omniscience and omnipotence. So, if you really become a logical Presbyterian, you must wake up every day and say what? Well, what? This is the way God allowed it to be in God's sovereignty. It's goes down hard at first. But the older you get, it's very comforting. And I'm going to show you at the end, hopefully, how this resonates very nicely with science. Okay, now I'll tell you a couple stories. Um, sorry to be so self-referential, but these things were very important to me. Um, when I was a little child, uh, my mother... There's no father involved at that point, but my mother taught me how to pray. She had been raised in the Catholic Church, and so what prayer did she teach me? Lord's Prayer. So we said it together every night, and being the personality that I am, I started getting into, she would say it, and then I would recite it after her, and being the personality that I am, when we got to the end, how does it end? In the old Catholic version, not the truncated Protestant version, (laughs) (laughs) forever and ever they put that ever in there in the old version to get what just to make sure you get it and so being the person I am I used to say uh, for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and I would just lay in bed and start tripping off on that now I distinctly (laughs) wasn't that weird now at five, I remember something weird happened. I started tripping off on ever and ever and ever, and I had my first cosmic theological existential experience at five. I don't understand how it happened, and I'm not saying I understood it as it was happening, but it suddenly dawned on me, what? The notion of eternity, on and on and on. Now, it's true that my five-year-old mind smuggled the notion of time into the forever and ever, because in classic Christian theology, forever and ever is what? Outside of time, because we now know scientifically and theologically that time will what? End, because time is what? 
it's, man, it's not man-made. It's bound up in the matter of the universe, right? Space-time, remember this? Space-time. So space and time are bound together, and from the Christian point of view, that's all going to end. So forever and ever doesn't really mean the continuation of the universe forever. It's really talking about who? God, and God's outside of time. So I had this cosmic experience, and so now I'm walking around thinking what? That there is a future. Now, when I was uh, 10, which was in 1961, my uh, aunt, who was uh, a genius and a very learned person, gave me a science book. It was a, about this size, and can you all see this picture pretty well? What, what do you think it looks like? What does it look like from back there? A cloud? A UFO? <laughs> Meteorite, yeah. Well, this is actually a projection, and the, my book was cooler because it had it all on one page, like the whole thing. This is actually a projection of the origin of the universe from the singularity, as they call it now, the expansion of the universe with all the graphs and tells you what time, how long it took. And then you come to the second page, and we come to what? What's going to happen? And there's a number of different versions that scientists now hold. But I got one of those when I was 10. And it's, it's, it was the same as this one. So this isn't like new knowledge. Uh, they, they knew this back then. And I was studying this. And I, at the end, mine was cooler, though, because it actually showed the formation of the Earth. And then it showed how the sun eventually was going to become a red dwarf and would do what? When the sun becomes a red dwarf five billion years from now, what's going to happen? It's going to expand, and then what's going to happen? The earth will be burned up. And it, I was 10, and it suddenly hit me. What? What are we going to do? <laughs> yes, and we only have five billion years to do it. Now, what else do you think went through my mind? My first experience was what? forever and ever and ever, my second experience is there's going to be an end. And then the existential things just started tumbling through my head. Well, if there's going to be an end to the earth, then well, I, was, I wasn't that generous. I was like, not where do we go, but what's going to happen to me? Where am I going to go? And the whole idea started collapsing in on me. At 16, you don't really think, you know, all the time about cosmic thoughts. That means football is going to end. That means sports are going to end. That means my life is going to end. That means church? Well, I, I wasn't a Christian then, so it didn't even dawn on me. Girls are going to end. That's what I thought. Church. It's all going to come to an end. So that happened when I was um, 10. And I'll tell you one more story. You can see this word down here I put down here, epiphenomenalism. Has anybody ever heard of that word before, epiphenomenalism? <sighs> Dr. Barrett, 16 years old, 1960. Yeah, 1967. Epiphenomenalism. I was in a psychology class. And they gave me this book, 
and it was the current theories of human consciousness. And I was studying this chart, and it went right along the, did you ever, did you ever hear of epiphenomenalism? And she's a, a nurse anesthesiologist, and I'm going to ask you in a minute to just talk a little bit about something, so get ready. <clears throat> well, all these theories of human consciousness, I come to epiphenomenalism, and they said, oh, no, you know, what you think of as you, what you think of as yourself, what you think all these thoughts about you, are merely the byproduct, epi, riding on top of the phenomenon that's going on in your head, in your brain, and actually what's going on inside of your brain is merely a chemical reaction in a little three-pound pocket of meat. And the, the, the electrical currents and the chemicals that are surging through your three-pound pocket of meat are causing byproducts which are what you think of as yourself. But guess what? When that three-pound pocket of pound of meat starts cooking all those chemicals, when it starts shutting down, what's going to happen? They say, well, this notion of you, self, who you are, all these ideas that we have, that's all gone because it was merely what? The byproduct of chemical reactions. Now, I learned that in 1967. Are there any uh, 60s scholars here can tell me what happened that year that was an interesting correlate to that phenomenon that I just described to you? We knew that there was a theory, epiphenomenalism, chemicals running through your brain are what causes consciousness. What? What happened in 67? The summer of love in San Francisco. Do you guys remember this or? Haight-Ashbury. And it was in the news over and over and over again and I'm in high school reading this and guess what I'm reading? I'm reading in high school what? that my brain is actually a three pound piece of meat cooking with chemicals and I'm reading in the newspapers and watching on TV that what? There are chemicals that can manifestly, scientifically, categorically, absolutely change your consciousness. And I thought, well, wow, that's interesting. Now, tell us about your work as a nurse anesthesiologist and what happens when you put ketamine into people? What are some of the things that happen? Ketamine is very similar to LSD in the fact that it's a dissociative amnesia drug. So what it does is separates your consciousness of self from your reality which is the only anesthetic left that we use that acts that way. And can you tell us some of the things that happen without getting too outrageous and personal? <laughs> <laughs> Not to me specifically, but to of my course. patients. <laughs> um, what have you observed? What I have observed um, giving this type of anesthetic and other anesthetics is that I have the ability to take away a patient's self-consciousness as to how they're existing in their environment at that time. However, when I wake them back up and they are in this world again, 
they often tell me about their experiences of God, um, their dreams. Even those who would be atheist would tell me about experiences that they had at that time. So while I'm able to push a chemical and eliminate that patient's self-consciousness at that time, I can't take away the portion of them that's connected with God. Did you get that? <laughs> Expert testimony in a clinical fashion. Now, what's the point of what I'm trying to say here in, in using that information? Is it scientifically true that chemicals affect our brains? No doubt. And uh, the United States government, under the program of MKUltra, starting in 1947, did a 20-year experiment on the American population. They flooded the market with LSD, and they found out what? What they were really looking for was a mind control drug so that they could control their enemies. I don't know if you guys know that, but type in MKUltra, and MKUltra, it's a program that the government ran. What they were looking for was a mind control drug so that they could use it in the Cold War. So they started releasing this to the United States in certain pockets, and San Francisco was a natural. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to start an LSD mind-altering experience movement in uh, Canton. <laughs> <laughs> so they started in a place where it would cook well. They released the stuff, and they found out what? The agent that was most responsible for this, for the CIA, he, his nickname for LSD was Stormy because they couldn't control it. And all of a sudden, they were giving this stuff to people and they were having what kind of an experience? Mostly religious. The weirdest thing. It seemed to stimulate and enhance the sense of, not religious in the sense of Presbyterian, I'm not saying people took LSD and suddenly came to the realization that the sovereignty of God and human depravity are cardinal truths. But they begin to experience the sense that, wow, I think there's more to this experience that we call consciousness than merely the material. And that freaked the government out. So why did it freak the government out? You can't control religious mysticism. And you, I know you guys are looking at me like I'm weird, but I, I need to tell you this because this is, this is essential to understanding science and sacred in the 21st century. So we come to 1969. What big event happened that year that you all were uh, having various opinions about? Oh, it's stuck. Now listen. I want to read to you and you want to get an interesting experience of, to verify what I'm talking about here is go home today and type in Joni Mitchell Woodstock. She wrote the official song, Woodstock. Does anyone remember it? The, no, the name, uh, the song, Woodstock by Joni Mitchell. She didn't even go. She watched it on TV in a New York City hotel room. And then she wrote the song, Woodstock. Now listen to the words. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We are stardust, billion-old carbon. We are golden, caught in the devil's bargain. And we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Now, what did she just do?
all right, she grabbed the, the central metaphor, the central notion of the Christian faith that there was a time when what? Humans were, uh, well, before, before, before the stars were formed that led to the atoms that caused us to be, become formed, we were in this garden. I mean, you're talking about way back. I just want to go back to the garden. What was true about us and God then? We, so when we got to get ourselves back to the garden, what is she saying? We've got to get ourselves back to, and I'm not, I'm not saying that Joni Mitchell's a Christian, but she's using a metaphor, and if you took it on its face, getting ourselves back to the garden would be what? Going back to, to God, to, to the place where you were one with God. But she also puts in the song, what? We are stardust, billion-old carbon. Is that, where did she get that notion? We are stardust. Yes, the notion that the stars formed the elements, actually formed the elements. That's how the elements came to be, through the explosion of stars, and that this whole process has been cooking and percolating along and brought into a state of affairs what? What are we made out of? Stuff that was formed in the stars. Stuff that the stars formed. Now, am I saying that God didn't do that? No, I'm saying I'm a believer in God, so I must have to believe what? If I believe this, which I think there's a lot of good science behind it, if I believe that, then I must also believe what? God is the author of it. So this would be called fully gifted creation. This would be that God started the whole thing and maneuvered it and planned it actually and it's been rolling ever since and eventually it produces what? Humans. So what did Joni do? (laughs) She did. She did. Now go home and read it. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying, isn't that strange that that would be written in 1970 at the back end and on the, on, in the anniversary or the celebration of what? The biggest counterculture drug party since the mysteries of Eleusius 2,000 years ago. Isn't that weird? This is the world we now live in. Okay, now, let's talk about the actual scientific views now that we've got those little things out of the way. I just had to tell you that because you'll see how it all comes together in a a minute. All right, so let's look at science for a second. Actually, I I forgot to do something, so I'm going to beg your indulgence. Go up to the top of your page, and you'll see this word telos. I want to give you a definition of it, and I'm going to give you two passages so that you can understand it from a biblical viewpoint. Okay, maybe we should look at the passages first, and then we'll come back to uh, the definition. So Colossians 1.28, if you could look that up, please. We herald him, uh, teaching every person, guiding every person, so that we could present every person, and here's where it hits, so that we can present every person what? What is it? 
perfect does your text say? Perfect in Christ. We proclaim him. He means Jesus. We're announcing him. We're heralding him, teaching every person. The Greek word means shepherding, guiding, nurturing, nurturing, building up every person so that we can present every person how? Now, your translation says mature. Mature, some say perfect. Uh, some say fully developed. Fully developed. The Greek word is telos, and it doesn't mean perfect in the sense that we apply perfect to God. Nothing can ever be as perfect as God. Even Stephen Hawking says, if there weren't imperfections in the universe, if the universe was perfect, if the material was perfect, we wouldn't have a universe because it would be evenly distributed. The fact that there are irregularities and imperfections in the created order, in the material and the sub... Uh, level of quantum mechanics causes the universe to be able to develop. So there's no perfection anywhere other than God. So this doesn't mean that you're supposed to be perfect. What does it mean? That it is the goal of God for every Christian to, to reach what stature? Fully developed Christians. What does that mean? That means that most of the time you and I, if we reach that status, would be allowing Christ to fully control us. And characteristically, then, our lives would display what? Christ. On a, on a very high level. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfectionism because I'm in a Presbyterian church. And what do we know <laughs> as Presbyterians? Yeah, we're totally depraved. So there's no chance that we're ever going to be absolutely perfect in this lifetime. But Calvin and the rest of the reformers said what? No, you're not going to be perfect, but you can be what? Substantively in this lifetime formed into the image of Jesus. And you can resemble Jesus to a high degree. Forget about perfection. Just go for maturity. Okay, that's one way of looking at telos. Now let's look at the ne next one, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. This is, this is the end used in a, in a way that would be more familiar with modern Christians. This is the more classical. Who would like to read it for us? Nice and loud. 15, 24, 1 Corinthians. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Uh, does it say anything else back there a little bit more down? <laughs> and then... <laughs> there might be footnotes over we miss Okay, well, what's he talking about here? The end is here, what? And then the end shall come. What end is he talking about? The second, the second, the end, the consummation, the completion of all things. When Christ returns and restores all of the cosmos and everyone else to God. The consummation. So now you got two, now you got two pictures. One is a micro level, one's a macro level. Telos means in one sense you become a mature Christian. Telos means in another sense that God has been working through human history all this time and is going to bring human history to God's consummate and sovereign conclusion, which is going to be what? The coming of Christ, 
We don't know when. And then what's going to happen? Then will be the new, new heavens and new earth. So that's, that's a classical way of looking at the end. Okay, so now that we know that, when we use the word telos, we have to put something into it that is actually in the original word in Greek. And that means that things uh, are observed scientifically to have a, a seminal or a germinal form. And then as they develop, they have some sort of coding or intelligence within them that leads them to this place where we confer upon them status as we watch this of what? When you garden, what, what do you do? Put the seed in and you watch, and you watch and you watch, and you're waiting for what? Uh, well, germination, yes, but eventually you're watching, 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 and you're waiting for what? The, you, and, and a good gardener knows when, what? When it's, when it's telos, right? So this goes through all of nature. It's, there's a pattern built in. Things are coded, it seems, to achieve a certain end. And when they don't achieve that certain end, we call those what in science? That's a failure, <laughs> or it's an anomaly, or it's a mutation. Uh, a what? A hybrid. Well, that would be a positive one when that happens, yes. And then, of course, as it becomes a hybrid, then it's going to have, it had some tele teleological design in it that allowed it to become a hybrid, and now it's going to become another thing altogether because of the information. So whatever it was designed, apparently designed. <laughs> Sorry. It will achieve. Now, that's what you have to understand when you talk about telos. All right, now let's look at science and the sacred. Here's the theories that science hold. Ready? I'm on page, the first page that I gave you. I want to read this to you because I think it's really true. We are still in our scientific infancy, correct? I mean, I know we think we're really cool and everything, but I got here, uh, this is a great course, it's called Cosmology, the History and Nature of Our Universe. You can buy it, 40 lectures, physicists wrote the course, it's awesome. Well, anyways, what he says is that, um, this is interesting. We, we are the first generation ever to know in detail just how the universe came to be. Ugh, I wish he wouldn't have put the last couple words in there. I would have been happy if he had said, we are the first generation ever to know in detail just how the universe is becoming. And we are. That's the true statement. But he smuggled in what? Now, it's logical to go backwards. It is logical, and it's mathematically correct to do that. You can trace the universe back to a singularity. But what he smuggled in there, when he said, we're the first generation to know how that came to be. We're the first generation to mathematically figure out that it's probably logical that there was a Big Bang. But we're not the first generation to know what? Where that singularity came from. So you have to watch it when you listen to the scientists and you have to watch it when you listen to theologians. Because guess what they do? 
and professors. <laughs> they smuggle in their own little worldviews in their statements, and 90% of what they're saying on one level is very true, and then they smuggle that little, and that's when we say, hey, your metaphysical slip is showing. You're revealing. You're revealing your biases. So I don't have any problem working it all the way back to that. It, it seems good. It's math. It's, it works. It's plausible. So we're the first generation to know this. We're the first generation to have the mathematical power to understand. We're the first generation to understand that the stars are categorically and absolutely expanding. That's, that's amazing. So when you work it all out uh, mathematically, there's only a number of X amount of options that we have to explain the phenomenon that we're looking at. So let's look at the first one, the big freeze on the left. The heat death entropy of the cosmos as cosmic expansion finally overcomes gravity. These are shown here. That would be gravity, which is keeping all of the universe <coughs> kind of contained at this point in time, among other dynamics, but gravity is the most one. Eventually, entropy will take over. Entropy is what known as the second law of thermodynamics. What, is that, what does that law say? Uh, that's the first law of physics, but not <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Second law of thermodynamics just says that disorder increases, energy is ever increasingly non-usable to do productive stuff. Everything runs down. Things are breaking down. I had a vivid display of the second law of thermodynamics this morning when I got out of the shower and looked in the mirror. <laughs> Did you ever have that experience? <laughs> things are breaking down. Okay, so if things are breaking down, then eventually disorder is going to increase until we hit the so-called heat death of the universe, absolute zero, and then what? It's cold. Nothing. That's it. And that's one possibility, according to the math. Next one, the big rip. Hey, I didn't make these terms up either. I know it probably sounds like I did, but this is how these physicists talk. The big rip. Increasing acceleration of the cosmos will finally cause the cosmos to rip apart and disintegrate. Well, sure. If gravity gets overcome by the increasing speed of the universe, and we do know it is expanding, how do we know that? Does anyone know? It's expanding everywhere from itself. That's the cool thing. It's like there's no center. It's just all expanding every which way. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and how do we know this? Hubble proved it. The Hubble telescope. Hubble proved it because there's this thing called the red light shift effect. And when you see things from a long way away and they appear red, that's called the Doppler light shift effect. And guess what it tells us? That that's, that object is doing what? Moving away from you. And so when Hubble finally invented a telescope that was powerful enough to observe this and look into what is called deep space. And then when we were able to put the Hubble telescope out of our atmosphere into space and look and look into deep space, we discovered what? Everything is like going... So eventually, 
What's the theory say? Eventually, gravity will become overcome, and everything will just be ripped to pieces and returned down to a completely disordered quantum mechanic fluctuation of random chance materials floating, and it'll just completely disintegrate. Wow. The big crunch. Gravity will overcome the accelerating cosmos and cause the cosmos to retract into a singularity. A singularity, the whole model started out with what? A singularity. So this theory says that everything is going to collapse, gravity will cause everything to crunch down, and then we'll, a whole universe will be reduced down again to the size of something like a pea. Now, and you know, these people aren't crazy. You understand, these things are mathematically possible. They work it out mathematically. They don't just sit there and say, this is what's going to happen. No, this is possible. If gravity overcame the other forces, everything would shrink down. Because we already know it. We can see it. We see it all the time in the universe. What do we see? Black holes. What is that? A black hole is simply a, place, a pocket in the universe where gravity has overcome and become so strong that nothing can escape its grip. We do not yet know what's on the other side. Some of the higher ones... Th physicists think that you can go through those somehow. By the way, did you see Interstellar? You can somehow slide through those and they become um, portals to, to overcome the limitations of the speed of light and you can pop into another place in the universe. Okay, so <clears throat> these people have worked this stuff out mathematically. The singularity, they then say, could do what? If everything crunched back down into this little ball again, then theoretically, what could be possible? It could explode again. And this is also known as the cyclical theory of the cosmos, that the cosmos simply explodes, expands, until the forces of gravity finally say, well, nope. You pull everything back to the center, back to the middle, back to the core, then what? Of course, there's one little flaw to this theory. And, you know, the, the Hindus, by the way, they, they have believed this for uh, millennia. They believe that the universe is complete, uh, completely cyclical. It contracts, it expands, it contracts, it expands. So a lot of Indian physicists are really hot on this one because it, it reinforces their worldview. It doesn't mean it's going to come to pass. I'm just saying it, it is a very vi valid and... Uh, hotly uh, d defended view among some uh, physicists. Okay, and then, then what's the last one? There's only a finite amount of, amount of them. This is our current scientific view, the multiverse. Do ne now, don't even ask me to explain what string theory is. Because, <sighs> I mean, this is the outer edges of the smartest people in phys uh, physics. But according to their computations on quantum physics, they now believe that our cosmos might be one of what? Many cosmic configurations in which that cosmic configuration over here laying next to ours may not operate on the same laws of physics that govern ours. This is called the multiverse view. 
This is the current hottest view, and this is the one I would say that the physicists want to be true. And I think they want it to be true because why? Because it allows for two constructs that are very important. It allows for matter to come out of nothing. Do you remember I told you that third theorem that Hawking believes? That it's mathematically power, pos possible in a multiverse string theory uh, construct to believe that something could come from nothing. So that solves that problem mathematically for them. And also, in this model, it's theoretically possible that the universe will just come. There is not one universe, there's a multiverse. And guess what? They'll just keep doing what? Regenerating. So there will be no end. And so, therefore, then you could say what? Forever and ever. So, now. Does anyone know, do any of the physicists know which one of these are going to happen? They're not going to get to them because they're... That's a good point, Dr. Smith. We probably won't find out. How do we know what hasn't already happened? That's what the Hindus believe. Yeah. I've achieved my goal, God. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to hear any other thoughts. Would These are mathematically possible, but not proved yet. They're inferential models. Now, I put this in here just for the heck of it, shorter-term views on the end of life on Earth. Now, Dr. Smith, um, of course, if God turns out to be true, we will know which one of those theories was true eventually. Not, not in this lifetime, probably. But down here, look at the shorter-term views on the end, the telos. I listed 13. Um, uh, I got this from the uh, Future of Humanity Institute, who s they study these things. And uh, you can see 13 things that are listed here uh, that could end life on Earth. Uh, no, they're not. Um, they just are. There, there's two categories. One called anthropogenic. Those are caused by humans. One non-anthropogenic caused by non-human forces. And, uh, but Ricky, now that you bring it up, you want to throw a candidate out there for uh, most likely or the biggest problem today? Anybody want to? Those are 13 things that could definitely cause life on Earth to end. Global warming. World population, we studied that last week. In uh, um, 80 years, there'll be 10 billion people on Earth if things continue. It'll be a everything at once, right? Does it seem like everything at once is now starting to come together? Well, we know that's happened on Earth before. I mean, we have evidence of that. So, yeah, that could happen. 
Well, I, in the next three weeks, when I talk about spiritual evolution, I will try to address that and show how death, as, as we define it, biological death, fits into God's cosmic plan of using matter to produce creatures that can eventually transcend matter and therefore transcend death. Because what do we know about matter? What did Hawking teach us? First of all, it's not perfect. Well, that's, uh, it's never been observed to be created or destroyed. That's the first law of thermodynamics, and you have to put that one in there because you see how they smuggled that in. If you say matter has never been created nor destroyed, it's legitimate to say, how do you know that? And you can't test it. So what you can say scientifically is matter has never been observed to be created and destroyed. But come on, what do we know about death? What is death? What it, it's simply the second law of thermodynamics in operation. It's entropy. It's what? The degrading and the breaking down of what? A biological system that was once alive, and then what happens? We just break apart, and we go, and the body is dead. So it, God has, in the Bible, addressed this issue, and a part of the redemptive plan of Christ is to use this this cosmos, however you work it out scientifically, to use this cosmos to bring creatures like you and me to the brink and to the point where we're offered the opportunity to do something. And that is step out of the biological flow because right now as, a, as humans we are biologically imprisoned in this flow of events that we never started and we never asked for and we're just here but God comes to us and gives us the opportunity to do what? To step out of that, not totally, but in a new way so that you're not imprisoned to those laws anymore. What is the resurrection? It is a reconstituted body that is no longer subject to these laws of physics no longer subject to the second law of thermodynamics, no longer subject to entropy. It's not completely material. It's, Paul calls it a spiritual body. It's a body, you can touch it, but it's comprised of some other form of stuff that we don't know anything about yet. And guess what? It's immortal. It's eternal. God makes it. But he makes it out of what? Now think about this. You guys are good Presbyterians. God makes the resurrection body out of what? He doesn't give you, he, there's not a whole, there's not a room in heaven with resurrection bodies. And you come floating in like Casper the ghost and God says, well, which one do you want? Which, which new body do you like? Here's uh, Taylor Swift. Here's... Uh, Gene, uh, um, who? Uh, Gene Simmons. Gypsy <laughs> Gene Simmons. <laughs> now we know what you, what you do in your private time. <laughs> no, that doesn't work that way. God, what does the Bible say about our bodies? God takes the constituent elements of our physical bodies 
and reconstitutes them so that they are now what is called a spiritual body and puts some form of new spiritual life into the bodies, into the physics of our bodies, and causes them to be reconfigured, but now they're no longer subject to what? To the laws of physics. And we saw that easily displayed in the life of Jesus because he could do what? I'm still working on this. How can he do that? We well, say, oh, it's just a miracle. No, now we know what? There's more empty space here than there is solid stuff. Did you know that? Physics. And if I could tune the atoms of my body to the vibratory frequencies of the atoms in this chalkboard, if I was cool enough to know how to do that, theoretically, physicists, physicists say I could do what? Slide right through. By the way, was Jesus a ghost? How do we know that? They touched him. He ate a whaler or something like that, a fish sandwich. <laughs> now, I hope I answered your question, and I'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. The death concept is an existential, it's what's called an existential threat. The idea that it's the most terrifying thing to most humans, because you say, how, I'm like, well, where, what's gonna happen? Where am I gonna go? Am I just a random chance compilation of atomic material? Am I just floating through the cosmos and then I'll cease to exist? Everything I'm thinking about right now is merely epiphenomenalism, just byproduct of chemicals cooking in a three pound pound of meat. Yeah, I understand, but what I'm trying to do is show you, display one, one way of doing what? Synthesizing what? Science and the sacred. And the sacred helps us, and the science helps us to form a comprehensive worldview. I, did I, I know I didn't really answer your question, but. <laughs> okay, flip the page over, please. Now, let's just look at sacred for a minute. You know what? I didn't really want to teach this today. Uh, I really wanted to teach something else instead of this. But the more I thought about it, I really wanted to teach Romans 8 today to show you what Paul says about how the universe and how Christ and God are going to work and bring the universe to a conclusion. But I realized that I had to we had to study this first. So Romans 8 will be next week. So understand in your mind, if you, I hope you can come. That's not a gimmick to get you to come. I'm just telling you that uh, I, I had to do this first. Now what does Jesus do when, when we get over to the sacred and we start talking about telos? Uh, I'm not going to belabor this, uh, but I want you to look at Matthew 24, 8 with me, please. And this is the famous metaphor that Jesus uses Anytime we start talking about the concept of the end, Jesus gave us the supreme, absolute, and best metaphor to understand all of the dynamics and forces that are attached to the idea of the end of time. Now, what does Matthew 24, 8 say? Who could read it for us? All of this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Is that a red Bible on the desk? Oh, that's cool. Now, who else got something else? 
All of these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Who's got something different? All of these are the beginning of... The first pangs when something new is about to be born. Okay, so the Greek word that Jesus uses there is actually the straight-up word for a birth pang, and we have many women here who have experienced this. Uh, I never talk about it because I've never went through it. But I did have a woman tell me one time that, and who was in a position to know, an authority on science and stuff, that kidney stones are more painful than birth. And I have had kidney stones twice. So may God bless you women. <laughs> now tell me what a birth pang is. It's the contractions. And what do we know about them? Uh, wah, 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 wah. There's going to be more. So there's going to be an increase. So birth pangs are an increase in the contractions, an increase in what? Frequency? So they get more closer together. An increase in duration. In other words, how do they start out? I've had women tell me this before, but somebody tell me. How do you, what's the, like the first one? What does, it, what does it feel like? A minor, a little cramp. And then it relaxes. And then frequency, intensity, duration. It increases, increases, increases. Well, when Jesus said all of these things are the beginnings of birth pangs, he's talking about back here at the beginning, and he's predicting an increase just like a birth pang would, because at the back end of this process, what's going to be there from the Christian point of view? And then the end shall come, right? Christ will come, and there will be what? A new heavens, right? And a new earth. The Bible is very clear on that. So there will be a reconstituted or maybe just a straight up all new creation at the end of this. So now we go back to how Jesus told us to look at things. So when he says all of these things are but the beginning, and I like your translation, of the beginning, because one way you could look at this is the horror of the whole thing, but the other way you could look at it is what? This is a, um, a mirror... Could a woman say this? It's an inconvenience towards a really grand and glorious end. <laughs> Whatever you want to call that, it leads, you can focus on this, it leads to the new heavens and the earth. So when he said all these things at the beginning, what was he talking about? Can you look back in the, in the context? What did the master say? What was he talking about? What things? Wars, earthquakes, rumors of wars, famines. Uh, by the way, I'm in a little chart for you. Look, just look down in the chart. Uh, these are the major things that the New Testament says 
that Jesus and the apostles predicted. Now, I want you to go over to the right-hand side because I want to end this today on a, a note of synthesis. What does the Bible predict is going to happen? An increase in frequency, duration, and intensity of what? Right-hand column. Geocentric and cosmic disturbances ever increasing ever increasingly making life on, dif on earth difficult flip over the page now and look down at the bottom shorter term views on the end of life on earth how did we find out all of this stuff what ways of knowing did we use we used observation, we used science, we used logic, we used what? We used every way of knowing that you can know to even find out that Jesus' words appear to be what? Are we seeing an increase in frequency, duration, and intensity of the things that are listed on this chart? Okay, so I'm not trying to prove something. I'm just trying to show you that we use science, and the more that we use it in conjunction with the sacred, we find, I think, what? A lot of synthesis. Now, this is the last thing that I want to share with you as we come to the end of this section. Uh, I want to have this one thing that I want to point out to you that these physicists who don't account for God in their cosmology. The one thing that they agree on is that the conditions that were present back here at the beginning of the bang, if they had been in the least infinitesimal way been different, and I mean in the smallest way altered, then mathematically, guess what would have happened? We wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here today. Well, I, I can see why you would say the theory holds apart, falls apart, but what they've come to understand is we're standing somewhere in this whole flow, and the laws of physics dictate what? That for things just don't happen, they're always what? For every action there is. So something caused all this, and so if something caused it, then the constituent elements were back there in the first place, and if they would have been altered or changed in any way mathematically, guess what? We wouldn't be having this conversation. So that's known as the anthropic principle, and it, it doesn't, it's not a proof, it's just an amazing thing. It means we're having this conversation today, even according to physics, physicists, we're having this conversation because why? It was, this is the mind blower, it was inevitable. Why was it inevitable? Everything was just right for this whole thing to happen. It, whether you want to call it a designed or apparently designed, it could not have happened unless it would have, we wouldn't be here unless it would have happened exactly this way. 
Now, how does that synthesize with Presbyterianism? Because you, it, God was, if you are a Presbyterian, a stone-cold Presbyterian, you have to believe that what? God knew all of this at the beginning and did what? Said, go. And that means what? That it was inevitable that you and I would be here today at 1016, contemplating football in this afternoon so that we can relax our minds, but having a dis discussion about what? The meaning and purpose of the cosmos. Now, as you leave this course, think about this. Which one seems, you have to make a decision eventually, it's not proof, but which one makes more sense to you? that we're having a conversation about the cosmos because it was inevitable because the cosmos just is and therefore the cosmos just produced creatures that can be sentient and self-conscious and reflexively think back on their origin and realize that it all came about just because out of nothing and now we're conscious of it or what's the other view? Yeah, we were invented, we were thought up. This is a plan and the design is real. So, you guys have been great. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, next three weeks, we'll go on to spiritual evolution. God bless you, and have a great day.